Lesson six. We're going to try to make it through two chapters today like we did last week. We're going to go through chapters five and hopefully six of Daniel. So if you want to um, go to Daniel, open your Bible there. And then the scripture reference handout is like the other supplemental (coughs) scriptures that we'll look at during the lesson um, other than the ones that are in Daniel. So we're going to start out with Daniel um, just chapter five, verse one. And this in this lesson, we meet a new king. We say goodbye to Nebuchadnezzar last week, and we're meeting a new king, Belshazzar. Not to be confused with Daniel's name, which is Belteshazzar, okay? <laughs> so this is Belshazzar, very similar meanings of the two names. It's been about 23 years since King Nebuchadnezzar died. And if you remember in an earlier lesson, we looked at, and uh, pull out your little handout that, that is, has the gray box on it. It's the uh, Neo-Bab- the Babylonian king handout from today. Uh, and you'll see that under Nebuchadnezzar, who was the son of Nabopolassar, that there's a quote from Jeremiah 27, verse 7, that we read in an earlier class that says, All the nations will serve him, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Well, if you look down the list, you see that his son did indeed serve after him. Evil Merodach, evil not having the same meaning here as what we would ascribe to it. Um, He was killed in a rebellion probably by his brother-in-law who then took the throne. That particular king, this one is mentioned at the very end of both Second Kings and, uh, and he's also mentioned in Jeremiah. Then the son-in-law, this, is, this guy was actually a commoner who married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. He took the throne um, and ruled for, for a few years, very short time. And then his son, who was uh, that Labashi Marduk, he was uh, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, as predicted in prophecy. Um, for for a long time, uh, people didn't realize he had reigned at all because he reigned just a few months. He was a young boy and was murdered. He was apparently beaten to death um, in in uh, people wanting the throne, obviously. And uh, after that happened, then a, a king named Nabonidus, who was not related to Nebuchadnezzar at all, and under whom, under whose rule, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, came to an end. So the question is, who the heck is Belshazzar? Well, for many years, I mean, I'm talking until the mid-1800s, like 1845, this Belshazzar passage in Daniel was pointed to by critics as being proof that Daniel was just like a fiction, a fairy tale. That there was no such king as Belshazzar ain't happening. Well, turns out in 1845, they dug up a cuneiform tablet that was about the reign of King Nabonidus. And it turned out that King Nabonidus didn't like to live in Babylon. And he moved and went and lived in another city that was on their trade routes. And, you know, nobody's really sure why he did that. But he left Belshazzar, his son, as regent in Babylon and left him to be king in Babylon with the main part of his army. 
So Belshazzar really existed and was mentioned in these Nabonidus, it's called the Nabonidus Chronicle now, and it's now resident in the British Museum of History. So, that, so um, we're going to come a little later in this lesson to another king. We have no clue where he came from. And I just want you to remember that for a long time we didn't know who Belshazzar was. So here we are with Belshazzar. And just to set the stage for you a little bit, this, this guy was apparently, reminded me kind of of the king, if you ever studied English history, the King John of the Magna Carta, you know, kind of the, the weak sniveling you see him in cartoons all the time you know usually a weak sniveling lion but but it's this is the flavor that you get from Belshazzar very self-centered ignoring his responsibilities I don't know if I'm slandering the poor guy but but this is the impression that I get and what when this chapter occurs Babylon is actually under siege from Cyrus the Great and the Persian army the sieges, as you know, last a very long time. And as we studied in earlier lessons, Babylon was surrounded by huge double walls that were impregnable. There was no way a siege was going to succeed against Babylon. The walls were well defended. They were, you know, the Persians weren't getting anywhere. The Babylonians, you know, knew the Persian army was coming, so they stocked up with years' worth of food. The river ran right through the middle of the city, so water's not a problem. So they're sitting pretty and they're having a party. Okay, so this is, this is where we pick up in Daniel chapter 1. I mean in chapter 5 verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, we can see from this little history of the kings that Nebuchadnezzar was not his father, right? Nebuchadnezzar was, you know, a few guys back. And, and the problem here is that Aramaic, and neither Hebrew, has no word for grandfather, predecessor, you know. So this same word for father means all of those things. So in this case, it actually means Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor. Okay. The vessels that they're talking about, if you were following along in your K. Arthur study, study guide, you know that those vessels were... Holy consecrated vessels. And um, you've got some scriptures in your handout of the scripture references from Second Chronicles that talk about. Second Chronicles is like a, a history of, of how, how um, the Israelite nation ended up being taken into captivity. And in Second Chronicles 36 verse 7. It says, Nebuchadnezzar also, in addition to the captives, brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. And if you go to a few verses down to verse 18 in that same chapter, it says, All of the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. This was, there were several attacks captures and deportations of the people and the treasures of Jerusalem. So in the first one, he just carried some of the vessels off. In a later one, he carried everything off, destroyed the temple. So they, then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's wall has now been reduced to rubble, burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. 
Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. These were not just ordinary vessels, okay? I mean, you get the impression of bowls and goblets, right? Because they're kind of eating and drinking out of them. If you look at Exodus 30, um, verse 26, you find out where these, these objects, these vessels came from. This is back when the Lord was giving them the Israelite nations instructions on building the tabernacle and making the vessels to use in the tabernacle for worship. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting. This is oil he's talking about. You're going to anoint the tent of meeting with oil, the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and its utensils, and the laver and its stand. You shall also consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. And then if you, the Numbers uh, 4, uh, verse 5 passage, I'm just going to kind of skip through, but it goes through and it talks about even the Israelites, even the priests, Aaron, you remember Aaron and his family, the Levites, they were the priests, couldn't just go, you know, throw all the utensils in a suitcase and head on out when it was time to move. For every single utensil, every single group of utensils, the veil of the screen, the cover of the Ark of Testimony, the, bread of the, the table for the bread of presence, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar, the utensils of service, each set of utensils and each piece of furnishing for the temple had a particular color of cloth that was supposed to be wrapped up in, a particular order it was supposed to be put away for travel. So for Belshazzar to go and get, even to touch these articles, was to be subject to death. You know. And he was just completely blind to this. Not only did he touch them, look at verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The height of blasphemy. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack. And his knees began knocking together. <laughs> if you, I got online and um, I told you, I think last week or week before, that Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon at the time that he fell, and they have be, had begun rebuilding that throne room. And there, uh, I found some pictures on the web that I couldn't tell if they were copyrighted or not, so I didn't make copies for you, but that shows in the throne room a dais that, you know, a little raised platform that the king would sit on, and behind that platform is a niche in the wall that's a big arch, you know, kind of to make him look very regal. And I read in one of the the books that 
I studied to help help me do this, that that niche, when they uncovered it, was covered in white plaster. So you can just imagine Belshazzar sitting on that dais, drinking from the vessels of the tabernacle, and suddenly behind him, in this niche, a hand writing on the wall. And you can imagine the terror that struck him when he saw this. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Nabonidus was first. Belshazzar was second. So he'd be next under Belshazzar. For many years, people didn't understand that till they figured out, till they dug up that, that tablet and discovered why it would have been third in the kingdom instead of second in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Well, is that a big surprise after our last studies? They haven't got one right yet, have they? Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. So here you get a a sense that there is just utter chaos in this banquet room. Everybody's screaming and hollering, talking at once, and they wake up the queen mother. Okay, we are assuming it's the queen mother because if you look, if you remember back in verse 3, all the king's wives and concubines were already with him in the in the room, okay? And there is no word for queen versus queen mother. So, you know, you just kind of figure that this was the queen mother. She also kind of talks to him like a queen mother. So she comes in. What in the world is going on? O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Now, when we left Nebuchadnezzar, remember, Daniel was pretty old already. So at, at this point, he's, he's um, presumably retired. Okay? He's in his 80s by now. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how yeah. old is Daniel? Yeah, he's likely to be in his 80s by now. So he's presumably retired, um, only called on in you know, probably special, special times. This banquet is taking, taking place on October 11th or 12th of 539 B.C. Okay. You know, back then you just didn't live into your 80s, so he's extremely old by their standards. Um, the queen we talked about, and it's not unusual that she would know of him because Daniel was famous. Okay, not only had he been like mayor, ruler over all of Babylon for many years, he, he was ruler of the, all of the wise men, 
But Ezekiel, who was also a prophet, who had been taken into captivity and was there in Babylon, knew Daniel and had written about Daniel. Um, and I, did I put on your scripture references Ezekiel 14, 12? Okay. So this is, these are a couple of places where Ezekiel talks about Daniel. These, this is a prophecy that apparently Ezekiel had while he was in captivity in Babylon, where the Lord said, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in the middle of that city by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declare the Lord God. And he goes on and says that about three more times in this same passage. It doesn't matter, you know, if they had wives and daughters. It doesn't matter. You know, this Israel has become so wicked that even if kind of my top three guys, you know, Noah and Daniel and Job, the most, the, the, the men with the most integrity, okay, is, is kind of who, who this list is, were there. They only they personally would be saved and the rest of the nation would fall. Job of Job. So, yeah, no, we know. No, Job was not contemporary. Job was very old. So he knew him from Scripture. Okay. And Noah from Scripture. Okay. Sorry. No, Noah and Job are not alive. Daniel is. Good question. Yeah, definitely stop me if if I confuse you. That's not the intent here. And and then it in Ezekiel 21. It goes on to say, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and I'm sk- everywhere you see a little ellipsis, the dot, 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 I skipped a verse or a phrase or something. Because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. There's a little sarcasm there. And your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. And here he's talking about the kings of Babylon, okay, thinking that they're God. So anyway, Daniel walks into the throne room and immediately recognizes the vessels from the temple. Immediately. Okay. He is horrified. He looks, he sees the writing on the wall. And then he listens to the king. The king spoke to Daniel and said, Are you the Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now, the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make it its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, 
The Most High God granted sovereignty, sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was, his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone which do not see, hear or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him And this inscription was written out. And this is the description that was written out. Mini, Mene, Tikal, Uparsin. Now, we talked a little bit about the languages um, and, and how they were written. And there's a lot of question as to, these are really simple, common words that were in use. How come these guys couldn't read them? And I, I saw some, some people who said, well, you know, they were written without vowels and those, you know, out of context, they could be a number of different words. And it's also possible that they were written kind of in block form, you know, not, not like a sentence or anything, but just, you know, up and down. And maybe that was confusing to them. Nobody knows for sure. We don't have a picture of the inscription. But for some reason, the wise men couldn't figure out Either the word or the interpretation. Exactly. That could be. Or they were afraid. Like they like we think they were. Why did Bathsheba refuse the king? Right. King David. Uh-huh. Yeah. What you going to say? Yeah. That's right. So when you when you look at what these these now of course we have hindsight we know what the words are okay if you look up the words mene means numbered ordained or set okay as in a set number a set time tikal means to be to balance or be weighed as in like a scale if you think of a scale and uparsin which um, comes in a couple of forms uh, also paras is is, an, is another it's the same word, means to divide up. And I don't know if the word parse that we use today comes from the same root or not. I would suspect it does because when you say you parse something, it means you're dividing it up. So Daniel says, this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tikal, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. 
Peras, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Despite the fact that Daniel didn't particularly want to come out of retirement and serve this king, you know, and despite the fact that the message was negative, Belshazzar still, you know, gave him the necklace of gold and made him third ruler in the kingdom. Um, Fortunately for Daniel, his job didn't last very long because that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Here's uh, another handout for you. I'm going to pass them around both ways so it'll go a little faster. This is how we know what night this banquet was on. Because we do know from history what night Babylon fell. And this was the night that Babylon fell. Now, you don't need to look at at the handout yet. I just wanted you to pass it around because we'll use it in just a second. But I want to tell you what happened on this night. Cyrus figured out he was not going to get into Babylon just by starving them out. It wasn't going to happen. They could last forever. They had cattle in there. They, They could do whatever they needed. So what he did, according to Herodotus, which is, who is a famous historian from the period, not always reliable. None of them are always reliable, but this is, this is the story of what happened. Cyrus divided his army into three parts, and he stationed one part at the mouth of the Euphrates where it went into the river, you know, a little ways where he, they couldn't be shot from the walls or, you know, people couldn't see him. It's at night, right? He sta- stationed another part of his army on the other side of the city, where the Euphrates exits the city, he took the remainder of his army upstream, built a canal, dug a canal, diverted the Euphrates. He warned that the, the two armies that he had stationed on either side of the city, when the river becomes fordable, go in through the riverbed and take the city. And that is exactly what they did. And according to Herodotus, they got in, they took the outer walls. The king is in his palace making merry. The people in the middle of the city had no idea they were under attack. And that night, Belshazzar was slain, according to the Bible. Nabonidus, the other king, was out of town. You know, he had fled before the siege, presumably. And he, he ended up not coming back till later. He came back, got captured. But... But this is the fall of Babylon. So then we get to Darius the Mede. So Darius is that other king I was telling you about that presents a challenge for us. If you look at the handout, you see, I backed up a little ways to Cyaxares I. Now, he was the king of Medea who helped Nebuchadnezzar's dad, King Nabopolassar, Overthrow the Assyrians. I don't know if you remember that far back. We talked about that, where they, the Medes and, and uh, the Babylonians joined together to defeat the Assyrians. Well, that king, his, his daughter was Amethyst, and she married Nebuchadnezzar. And we talked about that in a previous lesson. She's the one he built the hanging gardens for because she was homesick for Assyria. That same king also had a son named Astyages, who was the last king of Medea. And he had several wives. Now, from, from, one, from an earlier wife, he had a daughter named Mandane, who married the king of Persia, Cambyses. Their son was Cyrus the Great. Okay. 
it is speculated that Astyages had a son by this later wife, one of these later wives, named Darius the Mede. Now that is according to Josephus, the historian that we've talked to a, a time or two before. Um, Josephus says Darius the Mede, let me see what he says. Darius the Mede was the son of Astyages who ended Babylonian rule along with his relative Cyrus. He took Daniel to his own palace in Medea and honored him as one of the three principal satraps in the land. But the other rulers were jealous of Daniel and determined to get rid of him. So that's Josephus' version of the story. Well, in the Bible, in one of the later chapters, Daniel says that Darius' father was Ahasuerus. Okay, Ahasuerus, I I can't even say it. But he doesn't say Astyages. There is no Ahasuerus that we can find anywhere in that time frame. There's one later after Daniel dies, but there's not one during this time. And there's more Dariuses later after Daniel dies, but there's not one during this time. So various scholars have posited that this was Caesarius the, t- the second, that this guy was, maybe it was another name for the governor, Ugbaru, who, who Cyrus put in charge of Babylon. You know, I, I would go with one of two things. It's, I think it's either the son of Astyages, okay, or it's possibly Cyrus himself and just a throne name for Cyrus himself. Um, Cyrus was a, may have been his Persian name, and Mary, maybe Darius was his Median name, you know? It's not documented that way anywhere, and we don't know. But one of the, and there's two reasons I think these two things. And one is that in the Bible, Daniel says Darius took the throne at the age of 62. That was in that last verse. Well, this son of Astyages would have been about that age at that time. Also, we know that Cyrus was that age at that time. Okay, so that's why I'm hanging my hat on one of those two nails. All right. Um, We see Darius Darius the Mede come in at this point and... We move on to Daniel 6. How are we doing on time? We're doing good. Now, one of the things you, you find out about Cyrus as, he, uh, as you read about him in history is he was, he was unique, I think, in the sense that he generally incorporated the rulers of the lands that he conquered into his government. He didn't, you know, usually, if you read the Bible, if you read Chronicles and Kings, what you find generally is that if some king gets captured, the, the king that just got conquered gets his eyes gouged out, his kids are all slaughtered, and he's impaled. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's pretty gross. But Cyrus didn't make a habit of doing that kind of thing. So it's entirely possible that Cyrus retained people like Daniel, that he did maybe, we know he established governors in Babylon, all right? So he tried, he did a great job of incorporating the existing cultures, and that's one of the reasons he was able to create his world empire. Because the people, like we looked at Astyages, that king a second ago, when Cyrus, that was Cyrus's grandfather. Well, Cyrus went to war against him to take over his land, so he's you know, not all good, but the people revolted under Astyages, handed Astyages over to Cyrus and said, come on in. 
And that's pretty much what happened in Babylon also. That's part of the reason I think Belshazzar was probably such a low life, is because when Cyrus did come, the people welcomed him into their, into their cities. So, it seemed good, we're in Daniel chapter 6, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. So they audited him. Okay. They, they looked at everything. And it says, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. The only basis they could find to accuse Daniel was on the basis of his faith. And that you can't escape. You know, the accuser who stands before the throne of God and accuses the brethren night and day will should and I hope always be able to accuse you on the grounds of your faith and on nothing else. So then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Now, he's not going to see, he didn't obviously did not see any problem with this. You know, it was just kind of a flattery thing. It was, you know, just for 30 days. We really like to make this King Darius month, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so he signed this into law that nobody could pray or make a petition to anybody but him for 30 days. Daniel 6.10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. They were already open, had always been open. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day like he had been, praying and giving thanks before his God. Even though Daniel knew the horrific penalty being thrown into the lion's den. Um, and even though he knew he was being watched and he knew this was certain death, he continued to be faithful to God. How easy would it have been to shut the windows or to pray in another room? It just It's such a measuring rod for our own lives, isn't it? He, his, by his actions, he declared, to par- paraphrase Daniel 3.17, My God, whom I serve, is able to deliver me from trouble. But even if he does not, let it be known to you that I am not going to bow down to anyone but the Lord my God. Remember from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
So then these, king, these men came by agreement, found Daniel making the petition and supplication before his God. And then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And then as soon as the king heard this, he knew he'd been duped. He had been had. And he was really upset. Couldn't do a thing about it because he is in an inferior kingdom, as we found out. And he can't change that law. He spent, it says he spent the entire day till sundown trying to find a way to get Daniel out of this punishment. Then the men came to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. And so under duress, the king gave orders. Daniel was brought in, cast into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. You know, you wonder how long had Daniel been serving under this king. It was a period of time because it was enough time for Daniel to distinguish himself. But he's in his 80s. So you see now the beginnings of that witness that we saw, that respect that we saw grow between him and Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's tired. He doesn't want to do this. But he is still faithful. And it's bearing fruit. It's bearing fruit in this king's heart. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. I wonder if he was praying to Daniel's God. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day. And went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near to the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel responds with calmness. He is not panicked. He is not clawing at the walls. Let me out of here. Get me out of here quick. He takes the time to respond to the king with the customary greeting of courtesy. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. You get the sense that Daniel was almost judged in a way. You know, he felt like he was, he also, like Belshazzar, was being weighed in the balance. Mm-hmm. Certainly he was found innocent. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. 
The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. (laughs) So it's not that the lions weren't hungry. Okay. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. This reminds me very strongly of Christ of Christ being sent to death and death having no power over him submitting himself but our God has power over death and he has exercised it on more than one occasion and the whole the whole story of Daniel is very much a parable in addition to being very real it's in here for a reason it's in here for the Jews so they understand how they're to act when they are in this age of the Gentiles you know so they understand that their God is with them even in their tribulations so they understand there's an end to it and that God has power over death this is another reason why the, the Christ was so hard on the Pharisees when he came because if they truly recognized God in these stories in the scripture they would have recognized Christ when they saw him the rest of the book we're finished with kind of what I would call the easy part this was just kind of ramping up here (laughs) these first few chapters we spent time on because they give you a sense of the face of God, of the power of God, and of the character of the man of Daniel. And you need to understand his character and have the same kind of respect for him that the King Nebuchadnezzar had and King Darius had because we're fixing to get in in these next few chapters into some of the apocalyptic visions. The whole rest of the book is apocalyptic visions that concern the end times. Um, We've got a little taste of it in one of the earlier chapters about the statue, but we're going to get a whole lot more into this. So it's going to start sounding a lot more like Revelation. And if you weren't thoroughly grounded in the integrity of Daniel, you might say, this guy's making this stuff up, you know. Um, when you read some of the stuff that comes in the later chapters. So it's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. And uh, we'll start next week.